one quite funny story always is uh, the, the story of how the French invaded the Netherlands, or it was, I believe it was still the Dutch Republic at the time, uh, sort of 1799 around that time, and that it was a very strong winter. And one of these, it, there's a great painting of it as well, and that it was the only time in history that a cavalry regiment was able to capture a navy because the Dutch navy was uh, <laughs> iced in. So the cavalry, the French hussars, were able to just ride up over the ice and to capture the Dutch navy. And I think that's that's quite a funny thing, quite humiliating from our from our I, perspective. But yeah, a funny story nonetheless. For a nation that prides itself on its ability on water. That's that's rather embarrassing. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of That Was Genius. We've got a very exciting new side project for you in which we discuss history and fun things with other people who like to talk about history and fun things. We've got some really exciting guests lined up, and first up is the great Dutchman himself, History with Hilbert. Prince of the Facebook memes and March Lord of the YouTube history channels. We caught up with Hilbert to discuss, well, pretty much everything historical under the sun. I do hope you enjoy it. Uh, Let us know what you think. Get in touch with us on Facebook at That Was Genius, on Instagram at That Was Genius, or on Twitter, that underscore was underscore genius. Let us know if there's anyone else you want us to talk to. Let us know what you think. We'll have more of these coming up. But for now, here's Hilbert. Hello, Hilbert. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? <laughs> very, very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. Very excited to be on the show. So thank you very much for asking me. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. For everyone listening at home, you may well be familiar with Hilbert. And I'm going to get this wrong. And I do apologize, Hilbert, <laughs> Hilbert Finkenoch. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, but that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. Very Sweet. good for the, a Dutch attempt, you see. <laughs> well, I think when it comes to me and Dutch, everything is an attempt. There is absolutely no, no I think skill that's involved. Everyone in Dutch. <laughs> I, I get the impression that some of the Dutch and Dutch. I, I get the impression from some Dutch people I've spoken to that the Dutch speak English better than they think other Dutch people speak Dutch. That didn't make any sense, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I know what you mean, and I would agree, actually. Yeah, I think definitely the sort of North and South divide is a thing in the Netherlands, too. So, Hilbert, you're better known, I think, probably as History with Hilbert. So tell us a little bit about what it is that, what it is that you do. All right, so I guess to use the uh, fandangled new term, it's a, a YouTuber, I guess, is what I am. But I always just see myself as someone who sits... Uh, behind a laptop and records videos about history and sometimes languages and flags but that's where the name History with Hilbert comes from because it's uh, me talking about history and well I'm Hilbert so it's kind of in the name really. <laughs> it's, it really sells itself doesn't it? It's a Ron Seal type name it <laughs> does that's what it true. says on the tin <laughs> I mean my friends were unsure when I started whether History with Hilbert you know he, they're going to think what's Hilbert you know what is this but I think it worked quite well in the end. <laughs> Your specialist area one of many is Middle English and the and the Vikings and uh, and a hill but could well be a, a Viking or Middle English term couldn't it for a, a stream or river or yeah, I mean definitely yeah it's related to some English names as well so you see obviously you have uh, Gilbert but I think that comes in from French but then you have Anglo-Saxon names like Edgebert it also has the Bert part at the end which is quite fun or maybe Hilda is an old name for a, a nun uh, and this kind of thing so it's uh, it's it is related but that's the case with all the, the peoples in northern Europe is the further you go back the more related they are so I had no idea the Hilda is a nun is an old word for a nun 
Oh, well, it's it's not an old word for a nun, but there was an, an abbess hild and all of this kind of thing, and, and ah. she founded a monastery. I forget, somewhere in, in Wessex, I believe, uh, back <laughs> in the Anglo-Saxon period. But yeah, but hild actually means battle, which is quite interesting that you then have an abbess called battle. But So the name Hilbert actually comes from Hilde Bert, and hild is an old Germanic word for battle, and Bert means bright, so it's battle bright. Oh, wow. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> So there is a history behind Hilbert as well, I guess. <laughs> First of all, I will check with you. Your big area of history is kind of medieval Northern Europe. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say so. It's what I'm studying at university at the moment. So it's sort of the the term Dark Ages has fallen out of use a little bit, but essentially it's the, the Viking Age and a little bit before that is what most interests me. And I think what I know most about, although still very little, of course. <laughs> what is the correct name if the Dark Ages have fallen out of favor do we call it medieval do we call it kind of middle english or yeah so i think that the term that's being used is early medieval which which kind of fits it quite well early medieval of, now. Uh, between the romans and then you get the migration era with all the tribes moving around uh, which we know even less about than the period that i'm doing currently and then after that you get the early uh, medieval <laughs> period this is the thing all history is complicated obviously but there's just something I I have tried to get my head around this period of history and I just can't. It's, it's <laughs> there is so much complication to it. There's so much happening. There's so many different names and titles and tiny little mm. kingdoms appearing and disappearing. How on earth do you get your head around everything that's going on in northern Europe from about well, we're talking about kind of 6 700 AD to 1200 AD really, aren't we? Mm, I think the short answer is you can't, but it's quite fun to try. So <laughs> I'd say, I mean, just go for it. I've met people at the university where I study who have been studying this for 50 years and say, you know, we're not much further along, but we have some quite interesting theories that we've come up with. And I think that's the furthest you can kind of get. Because, of course, if you look at things like the Cold War, say, uh, Vietnam, Korea, you can, you know, everything was written down. There's photos, there's videos, there's documents, there's everything. Whereas for this period, there was much less being written down. And quite often the archaeological evidence suggests the complete opposite from what was written down, uh, yes. which makes it very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the archaeological evidence, I guess, is the real wealth because the written evidence is sometimes quite patchy and is sometimes being mistranslated many 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 right. times over the years that's very true but it also depends on how you actually interpret the archaeological evidence which is quite a big thing at the moment uh, quite a few debates going on about whether you find uh, a grave for example there was a grave found i think it's in oxford of uh, a church that was burned down and some uh, males and they did DNA tests and it turned out they were Scandinavian males and then they said, aha, this must be from the great massacre of a hundred and over thousand and two, the St. Bryce's Day massacre when the king ordered all the Danes to be killed in England. So that's one interpretation but then that's an interpretation just based on the written evidence whereas if you actually look and you see oh, they were all killed from the back, they were young men, uh, they were clearly Scandinavian, they were all between the ages of I think it was uh, 15 and 30. So so it seems unlikely that these were settlers but rather that they were probably merchants or warriors so it again it depends on how you then interpret the archaeology which again makes it even more complicated <laughs> so what got you into well history in the first place i am pretty sure the person to blame is my dad because he was always telling us stories and things when i was a child I actually was born in bath which is in somerset 
um, and always going around there's quite a few mounds and things and my dad when we would drive past when I was younger would always say ah you see that's the mound where Beowulf was buried which it definitely isn't because he lived and <laughs> fought in Denmark and all over the place but you know as a young child that's just great for your fantasy and imagination so I think it just kind of went from there and it's just always been something I've been very interested in. Fantastic I mean actually that's a part of the world similar part of the world to where I grew up down near Winchester and right. there are some amazing pieces of uh, of archaeological evidence around there aren't they discounting Stonehenge Absolutely. which is actually really bloody boring <laughs> <laughs> you've got the chalk art in the hillsides you've got mm. burial mounds left right and center there it, it really is kind of history central isn't it absolutely oh, and winchester is brilliant because winchester was the capital of wessex for a very long time and we know that alfred was there and it's also the place where the anglo-saxon chronicle was kept uh, we also know that king knut when he invaded was the danish king but he wasn't very much liked in london so he moved the capital back to winchester so there was an awful lot going on in winchester you had two minsters that were built there the old minster and the new minster i know very creative names but hey ho <laughs> i mean yeah hey, it helps you tell it helps you tell them apart doesn't it well exactly Exactly. <laughs> Although they were built right next door to each other, so I, I can't help but feel there must have been some confusion at the time. <laughs> so you had an interest in history from being uh, very young and kind of stories mm. that your dad told you. I love that, by the way. I love that stories you tell kids, it really doesn't matter if they're true or not. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's how stories spread, isn't it? That's how legends start. Well, exactly. I mean, who knows what the true story of Beowulf is? But it's grown to be he's buried in a hill near Bath, well, according yeah, exactly. to one strand of legend, which is just as valid as all the other ones. <laughs> I mean, quite possibly, yes, because the whole story of Beowulf is probably not that the guy who actually wrote it down thought up the story there and then and then wrote it down. It could quite possibly be that he, as a child, was taught the story by his dad. And so that we're getting a story told by my dad from the story told by someone else's dad to the guy who actually wrote it down in the 18th century so it's quite possible yeah i mean we've we've actually in the main podcast we've we've covered this before in that storytelling we've talked about fairy tales and actually they come from mm. such a long oral tradition that where the story started it's absolutely nothing like the versions of the stories that we know today yeah even as late as the kind of the 18th 19th century stories were being retold and developed and renewed and things were changing depending on the politics and the the social structure of the world at the time and, you know, even things like Snow White have gone from stories of rape and pillage to stories mm. of sleeping, you know, sleeping I mean, princesses that, yeah. were never, that were never there in the first place. And they're actually systems. There are systems and catalogues to track the evolution of stories over time. And I forget what the system's called now, but there is one for tracking the evolution of fairy tales, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And the people who deal in this system of cataloging get incredibly defensive if anyone takes the piss out of it <laughs> wow I'd, i had no idea about that to be honest that the whole snow white story had developed although uh obviously fairy tales they change as time goes on you know some things uh sort of in the past it would be one thing but then the political situation would change and then they would have to change the story to fit with the modern politics it kind of makes sense in a way doesn't it because in a in times when people can't read and write particularly well stories are how you spread news you spread belief you spread education and if there's mm. a certain way that people are thinking at a time the stories they're telling will reflect that i guess absolutely i think it's it's kind of the case now as well with how people interpret things and then they say oh this clearly shows this whereas 50 years ago or even five years ago it could have been completely different <laughs> you you said earlier on, on that you were talking about a, a kind of an evolution a development in the last 50 years of our understanding of the early medieval period uh, what's changed in the last kind of 10, 20 years? 
I think there's been an awful lot of work done. So by, for example, my professor this last year who uh, has retired now, Professor Simon Keynes, he always says that it was the great work is first in the Anglo-Saxon period you get in the 1940s, uh, Frank Stenton, who was a very, very good historian, because what he started to do was to say was a real break from the past because our knowledge of the Anglo-Saxon period was written down mainly by, well, first in the Anglo-Saxon period, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and then afterwards by Norman historians. But of course, if you know anything about 1066, you'll know the Normans are the people that beat the Anglo-Saxons. So their (laughs) narrative of the period isn't going to be exactly um, 100% reliable or or very nice to the Anglo-Saxons. And I think most historians kind of up until Frank Stenton really enjoyed a narrative history. So you get all the great stories of King Knut trying to turn back the tide and Ethelred always being unready and Alfred burning the cakes. And as you say, the legends and the stories are really fun, but they're probably not the actual history. You kind of have to break away from the whole narrative and the whole storyline and actually try and find independent pieces of evidence and use that whole body of evidence. So I think Frank Stenton and then certainly Dorothy Whitelock afterwards, what they started to do was to look, okay, so we have the story in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but we know it's going to have a lot of political bias because, well, it does. There's always bias when you're writing things down. But then they started to look at archaeological evidence, so at charters that were being written, you know, who's gaining land, who's losing land, and also at the coinage because the coinage is the real way in which the uh, royal authorities and who are minting the coins can bring a message to the ordinary people Mm. so i think that's that's quite a big change that they started to look at other pieces of evidence and to not only go on what the written evidence is because the written evidence is nice and we're lucky to have it but as we know even from today when newspapers print things they don't always have the best interests and they always have a certain spin that they would like to put on things and i think back then that was especially the case but you mentioned the coins there that reminds me of a not a story but of a, a piece i did at university about coinage because i studied middle eastern history and the history of the uh, of the eastern mediterranean mm. when the muslim conquests first kind of spread through the middle east they started minting coins and all of the coins still had all of the byzantine paraphernalia if you like and iconography on them and the reason for that was not because they still believed in this but they wanted to create a sense of flow and a sense of evolution don't mm. panic everything's the way it was but there's a new government in town so we're still actually we've got muslims printing coins with the cross on them yeah with the byzantine coptic cross simply because you wanted to create that continuity you wanted to create a sense of certainty in the economy and tell people that actually everything's okay yeah. that's it's very interesting you mentioned that because there's very similar things that happened in my period in in sort of my area that I study for example to come back to muslim coins that are being minted obviously we have the the vikings from sweden would go down the rivers of eastern europe so they came into contact with the muslims there i think just when the and i'll have to get this the right way around and correct me here but i think was it the abbasid caliphate came in and the umayyad caliphate fell it's around that time i think Um, but then we get silver coins the dirham that come and we see that one is minted which is very interesting offer of mercia so an english king and then a very very bad attempt at copying the arabic letters but they're just (laughs) squibbles because the anglo-saxons had no idea that it was meant to say something so they've just tried to copy this coin but it's a it's a great coin i'll uh, i'll I'll send you an image of it after our conversation but it's uh, it's just one of those things which is which is quite funny to us the brilliant yeah (laughs) just utter utter nonsense trying to make it Mm. so yeah i mean that's a funny one isn't it 
the Muslim world was the economic powerhouse of the world at the time. But you wonder why a Mercian king would be trying to yeah. essentially forge or adapt Arabic coinage. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think the Frisians did similar things with Frankish coins, and you can usually tell when one's a Frisian coin because it's it's sort of, it's clearly based on a Frankish design, but they haven't quite got the forms right. So I think it's it's more a thing of, well, you have to copy the coin to get the value of the coin. Um, yes, but, I suppose uh, so. <laughs> yeah. It is quite funny to look at these old coins. <laughs> so... What's your, I mean, we'll, we'll start with a, with a kind of a lighter, funner question, then we'll go on to something slightly heavier. Is there any particular stories that you've you've learnt about, that you've experienced over the years from history that really jump out at you as being particularly fun or silly or really opened your eyes? Ooh, that's that's a very good question, and I'll, I'll try not to spend too long thinking about fun <laughs> fun stories. I think there's there's all sorts in history really that you, you you come past some sort of extraordinary coincidences and then sort of really silly trivial things that have started a war like the war of Jenkins ear for example but Ooh, uh, what's the war of Jenkins ear I mean you've put me on the spot now because I remember <laughs> that there was a funny story behind it but I can't remember exactly what the funny story was but I can tell you that it was between the British and the Spanish I believe it was in the late 18th century and I think the Spanish won that one so that's quite a rare occurrence but unfortunately <laughs> I've forgotten the funny story behind it which is the worst thing about history is that you can learn so much of it and then forget so much of it as well absolutely yeah I think that's I, I always look back on my old university notes and think my god there's a lot i've forgotten <laughs> i i do this wow. and i've only just started my first year of university so it's it's clearly a recurring theme one quite funny story always is uh the, the story of how the french invaded the netherlands or it was i believe it was still the dutch republic at the time uh it's sort of 1799 around that time and that it was a very strong winter and one of these, it, there's a great painting of it as well. And that it was the only time in history that a cavalry regiment was able to capture a navy because the Dutch navy was uh, <laughs> iced in. So the cavalry, the French hussars, were able to just ride up over the ice and to capture the Dutch navy. And I think that's that's quite a funny thing, quite humiliating from our from our I, perspective. But yeah, a funny story nonetheless. For a nation that prides itself on its ability on water. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's true. rather embarrassing. <laughs> Although quite a funny story that happened a little bit later was, I think it was uh, 1942 with the Japanese in uh, Indonesia. It was a Dutch colony and the Japanese invaded. But the Dutch Navy managed to get away. And actually one Dutch warship was able to hide from the Japanese Navy by pretending it was an island and covering itself in foliage. <laughs> and that actually worked. So, wow. I mean, we may have been captured by the French on the ice in 1799, but in 1942 we were able to you know hide one of our ships <laughs> as an island from the japanese navy and how long so did it have go. to pretend to be an island for i'm not sure i think it was probably uh, doing its best to hide from aircraft and, and the navy but i think i, I can't remember exactly but uh, i'd have to look into the story but i think that's one of the stories that just jumps out at you as being so ridiculously silly that then you'd have a, a commander in the navy going all right, lads, you know, get some branches, get some sand. We're <laughs> pretending to be an island. But hey, yeah. if it works, it works. <laughs> I mean, that's a ballsy move, isn't it? That's either a backs up against the wall move of absolute desperation or that is just someone going, do you know what? Actually, I think this might work. <laughs> <laughs> that moment when it crossed into someone's mind and they dared enough to say, you know, actually, I have an idea. <laughs> but, uh, what <laughs> if? 
What if? <laughs> that is almost a kind of a Baldrick's I have a cunning plan, my lord, isn't it? Oh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think it was pulled off slightly better than uh, most of Baldrick's plans <laughs> in the end. <laughs> Quite possibly, yes. So moving on slightly to the YouTube channel now, what got you into, what was the idea behind making a history YouTube channel and taking your interest in stories and putting that to screen and, and to narrative? I think it's it's always been something that I've, I've wanted to do because I always enjoyed telling people about history but not so much that they enjoyed listening to me talk about history <laughs> so i thought you know what the internet I know that is a feeling. big place <laughs> it's pretty universal i feel among history buffs around the world but um, that's why it's a nice thing to have the internet and to have somewhere like youtube and i remember i think it was the yes it was the 16th of february 2016 that i uploaded my first video oh. uh, and it was a response to lindy beige who had made a response to uh, the last kingdom and i watched the response and i thought it was a great video and i absolutely loved it and agreed with most of it but thought now nah, there's a few points that i could nitpick about and so i did <laughs> and uh, that got the ball rolling so to speak and uh, well it's been more than three years since. So from that classic internet pastime of correcting others on perceived <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> I mean, that's true, but I felt it was okay. A mighty because, oak has uh, grown. <laughs> Lindy, Lindy Beige's video was called The History Pedant's Guide. So I thought when you start the well, video and title it The History yes. Pedant's Guide, you know, I'm sure a fellow pedant can come in and be pedantic about the pedantry. <laughs> and that is, after all, exactly what history is. Um, if you've not Pretty discovered much. that yet at university, uh, you will. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> oh, absolutely. I go to Cambridge, so there's plenty of it around. <laughs> I think I spent most of my three years at university studying history being corrected on things that I'd quoted from the uh, books or sources used by a rival of my professor. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's another very common theme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or it's the, the moment when you have a, a reading list for your next essay and uh, you, you sort of think, oh, I could criticise this author. And you think when you're sitting across from them having a discussion, you think, hold on a minute. Why is their surname the same as the surname of this professor? And mm. then you realise, oh, dear, <laughs> they wrote that. So now I'm arguing <laughs> with them about something that they wrote. You know, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's quite a lot of um, ego among historians, isn't there? There's an awful lot of pride for a kind of a profession which has... A, the stereotype of historians is that they're quite kind of bookish and quiet. But they're not. They can be quite vocal and uh, they defend their ground. Let's just put oh, it that they way. do. They do. But but I think at the same time, it's quite a it's quite a nice thing because clearly people are very passionate about what they do, and it and it does mean that it raises the standard when there's that bit of competition there. You know that people, everyone wants to be getting things right and to thoroughly do their research. And I think when people, depending on how you do it, of course, because you can be incredibly condescending and rude when you when you react to someone's work, which is is also the same in the YouTube sphere of things when I've made uh, reactions. Say what? Can, yeah, exactly. You know, YouTube beef and all of this. Colour me surprised. <laughs> but I think it does depend on how you do it. And I think if you do it in a constructive way, you know, you can bring more to the discussion. I think that's always a good thing to, you know, bring more ideas to the discussion and to bring uh, more theories forward that other people might not have thought of. And then they'll go away and revise their theory and we'll get a better understanding in the end by doing this. Good answer. And, and how do you choose what you make YouTube videos about? Because obviously you've done uh, you've done the Vikings and you've done quite a few videos on, on medieval times and that's what you study. So that, that kind of makes sense. But your most recent video, for example, is on is on the Spanish Civil War. Which again is another incredibly complicated topic. You've not chosen an easy one. So what got you? What got you into that? What made you think of 
of that rather than I don't know, War of the Roses. Pick a, pick anything. Oh, I I did have quite a few videos on the Wars of the Roses because that is you actually, actually another yes. one. <laughs> but sorry, to, sorry, being pedantic again. You see, it's the historian in me. Um, but uh, the Spanish Civil War. Well, I think. I did Spanish at A level, so we learned a little bit about the Spanish say, Civil War. Your there. pronunciation is is impressive. I, was gonna, oh, well, I didn't mean to much. say that you you launch yourself into uh, those quite difficult Spanish names and acronyms with a plum. I mean, I, I do my best. I get enough hate for it in the comments, uh, mostly from <laughs> South Americans who say, "Oh, Hilbert, you sound so Spanish. It's awful." But I I did learn Spanish from a Spanish speaker from the south, so I guess it's the accent stuck with me now. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's just what, the Spanish Civil War is one of those very interesting conflicts in my point of view because i think it's everyone's always trying to compare things to the second world war which i think in in some ways of course a very important lessons had to be learned but i think that means we often overlook some of the other conflicts that took place between the first and the second world war because they were so huge hmm. and i think the spanish civil war in many ways is a kind of foreshadowing of the second world war and i think very many lessons can be learned from the spanish civil war and how we you know go about interacting with each other because it in some ways the spanish civil war was a was a competition between fascism and communism and in other ways it completely and utterly wasn't yes so i think it's just <laughs> one of those where there's so many different factions and people vying for power and somehow it came it came out this way whereas it could have gone many different ways as well I think it's just something speaks to me about the conflict that I th- that I find very interesting. It's such a yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's such an odd one, isn't it, the Spanish Civil War? Because you had the you had the fascists and the royalists and the cler- essentially those closely tied to the clergy and those in favour of kind of democratic government on one side, and on the other side you had those in favour of democratic government and a different part of the clergy and some communists and also some mm. sort of fascists and mostly some anarchists and lots of foreigners. And <laughs> yeah, it almost was a, a miniature world war compressed into a very small space, wasn't it? It, it really was, and I think that the thing is that with this conflict, it's very easy to point at the bad guys on both sides but then it's also very easy to understand quote unquote the good guys on both sides and I think it's the the thing about the Spanish Civil War is it's one of those conflicts that really highlights that good guys and bad guys quote unquote depends on very much where you stand and actually quite a lot of the time I think a lot of the people fighting didn't actually have values that were that different but it's just the way that history goes it's the way that things are politicized and all Mm. of this and uh, also times of economic strife uh, and trying to go push too far with certain reforms and then others who were too conservative and wouldn't let things go so I think it's it's quite interesting and quite sad as well you know all the people who ended up fighting each other and the atrocities that were committed on both sides and you know scars that still are very real in Spain because we do forget but Spain was I mean if Franco and, and fascism have an, an interesting relationship because obviously the economic policies after the Second World War didn't go along the road of most other fascist countries like Mussolini and then Hitler with National Socialism for example but we do forget that it was a essentially a dictatorship until 1975 in Spain you know and things continue to happen under that dictatorship repression of certain groups and all of this but yeah I think it's quite interesting to think of it in that way as well that it kind of continued on in in Spain for quite a long time that that vestige of well really what had been a, a very strong ideology in the 1930s and then came crashing down in the 1940s you know continued on in Spain in some way or another even though there's many many caveats to that statement Yes, 
yeah. I guess it's a bit like um, the Soviet Union survives in Belarus to an extent, doesn't it? In a couple of <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. But but it's not. But it is. But it's not. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing the Spanish Civil War at the moment, and. It, are you going to continue with that for the foreseeable? Is there much else on the horizon? Yeah, I actually recorded the Spanish Civil War stuff quite a few months ago. So a lot of what people see is actually me speaking several months ago because I kind of, with university and other commitments in my life, I kind of have to plan very much ahead. So I think I have stuff on the Spanish Civil War and then I have some more modern things. So some things about Korea coming. Uh, Fantastic. If I remember rightly. Another and easy then, one? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> another easy one. But then... I think the most recent things that I've been doing have been on Alfred the Great and sort of the story of the unification of England. So I think that's something that I've wanted to do for a very long time because I had lecture series on this uh, and I wrote about it in my exams at the end of this year as well. So I thought it would be quite a good thing to include. It's a very interesting story. And because I've studied this, I have a lot of the information to hand already. I've got some great sources and books that I bought for my course uh, and lecture notes and things. So I thought it's a good opportunity to make that. So I'm working on that at the moment, but I'm not sure exactly when that will come out. And probably the first one will drop sometime this month, but I'm not, not entirely sure. As always, things are very chaotic. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, Hilbert, thank you so much for, for chatting to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Short and sweet. <laughs> but yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait for the Alfred the, uh, the Great series to come out. And actually, partly because I don't think I ever learned in school about how England came to be England. That's the thing. I don't think it gets taught at all. No. Which is, seems a very strange thing, because for most countries, the unification or independence is a huge deal. Whereas in England, it's kind of just you're taught, well... You know, you have the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings, and then England, boom. Yes. It's like, well, how, why, when, who? But anyway, that's uh, that's for another time. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Watch the video and we'll learn something. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> no promises. Cheers, Hilbert. And for anyone who uh, isn't subscribed to you or wants to find you, what are your details? Where will they find more? Well, if you'd be so kind as to provide a link um, I certainly will. at the bottom of this one, or you can go to YouTube and type in History with Hilbert, and you should find me. My little profile picture is of the Sutton Hoo helmet with a pair of sunglasses on, so hard <laughs> to miss. Uh, feel free to come and check me out. Fantastic. And you've also got a really good meme page on Facebook for uh, oh, well, highbrow historic much. memes. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't promise too much of the highbrow, but yeah, if you want to follow me on Facebook, I do have a team of admins and we sit around and make memes when we should be revising for our exams. But uh, yeah, feel free. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Fantastic. Cheers, Hilbert. All right, cheers. Ta-ra.